Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Rachel Ward. Rachel is a public theologian and LGBTQ activist, currently pursuing their Master of Divinity and Master of Arts in Practical Theology at Columbia Theological Seminary. Also musically featured throughout this episode is New Oro. New Oro is an indie rock band from California. You can get connected with both Rachel and Nuoro and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today I have Rachel Ward, and Rachel, on top of being a lovely and wonderful human being, uh, you do so many things in the world. Uh, You podcast, you write, you're a seminarian, just so much going on in your life. Uh, But who is Rachel Ward to Rachel Ward? Oh my gosh, is this your first question? (laughs) It is always my first question. (laughs) This is where I should do my homework more. Uh, Who am I to me? Oh man, I like this question too. Um, I'm a storyteller, first and foremost. Mm. I think everything that I do in my world is about telling not a good story, but an honest story, a true mm-hmm. story, um, a fully embodied, real, honest, and um, accessible story. So you mentioned podcasting. I definitely do that. Um, and that is on pause. So if you want to listen to some of that, you can, but it's on pause right now. But I, I am a writer by trade. I was a journalist for about seven years before changing my world. So um, listening to people and sitting with people and holding space for people to be honest and brave is just like, that's my jam. Um, uh, A pastor of the people and for the people through and through. And I think that um, I do that with a hope that there'll be a mutual and equitable return. So anything that offers wellness for myself and for those around me is, is who I am to myself. What an interesting question. I love Uh, that answer. I I love it. So I want to talk about all the work that you do and what you're up to in the world, but I am really curious about your story. Uh, You mentioned that, you know, you were a journalist for seven years and you've got all these other things, but how did you get to where you're at right now? Oh God, crying a lot. <laughs> That's crazy. <Seriously, laughs> crying a lot. Um yeah, how did I get to where I am? Um by by not accepting um society's box for me. Mm. Um as it goes with gender, as it goes with my privilege and my race. Uh, which is always an ongoing uh, work in progress and answer to that call Um, with my sexuality, with my faith. um, I have always had this uh, underpinning of tenacity to, um, to push back. Um, 
And I think that that has been, you know, a God-given gift that has saved my life multiple times. Um, and those are like stories for like a much longer, sadder time if you want to cry more with me <laughs> on the side. But um, yeah, pushing back and um, knowing that or coming into knowing that I have the ability and the autonomy to, to say no um, when it comes to, uh, you know, my faith saying no to me, my parents saying no to me, institutional saying no, you know, to mm -hmm. me, like, that's a word that I'm familiar with, but I think specifically for queer people, um, it's really hard for us to say no, um, because we've lost our, um, identity and the ability to know who we are and to know that we have that authority, which I say authority knowing that that can be like a very triggering helter skelter word but um mm -hmm. we do have you know an authority from our uniqueness that god has made us into to say no um and so i think always crawling back out of the hole to to claim that and reclaim that has saved me made me where i am allowed me to come to you from the closet that i am sitting in to talk to you today <laughs> back in the closet <laughs> but i'm not sure in I'm, a gay way <laughs> yeah I was gonna say, i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure there's uh there's some really fun jokes that get uh that get made on your podcast quite a bit with you doing you know queer theology yes. and everything but you're doing it in the closet quite literally yeah. it's the best sound <laughs> it's great um okay so with that that story you know there have been a lot of times where the church has certainly hurt you and a lot of folks like yourself um, what is it about the church that still draws you? What is it about uh, God and faith and theology that's like, you know what, not only do I want to be involved in that, I literally want to get an education in that uh, as a seminarian. Yeah. Um, I, I believe in the church. Um, I believe in the people that make up the church, to be more specific. Um, I believe in sacred spaces and rituals and sacraments and rites. Um, they are the thing that keeps pulling back into a physical space. I know right now with the pandemic, we're not in physical spaces. And we're also finding these unique ways to, you know, to do Ash Wednesday, which I'm thinking about right now and planning with my church. Like, how do we do that? But um, I believe in the people that time and time again throughout the you know the biblical canon through society through life have have watched the church be torn down the veil be torn the building be demolished the people fight and come back together and rebuild a, a table um, where we can sit um, and I believe in that with all of my fiber and being and I think and believe and lay claim that you know I'm a genesis oriented human being we're we're born for kinship we're mm. communal at our core um and church at its core is about the people who come together the brave space where you can ask the hard questions and sometimes sit in the silence we don't have the answers um and so i believe in that um and i believe in the continue 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 continued like jubilee year style retelling of the earth and rebuilding of what that space is um i believe in the movement of that space mm. and i also believe in the consistency of that space which might sound paradoxical because it is everything i think is paradoxical in our human messiness and you know in our existence um 
And as far as being in seminary, my call to go to seminary is definitely was definitely produced out of a deep longing of uh, desiring to have more queer representation mm. in these church roles, in institutional roles. And, you know, it was a cognitive based wanting to go. It was a call, like a spiritual call. But at the beginning, it was very like, oh, I need to know all the arguments and I need to know all the theology. I need to understand the doctrine. So like when somebody wants to, can I curse in this podcast? Absolutely. It's highly okay. encouraged. Great. So when someone wants to fuck with me and my sexuality, I can be like, no, bitch, listen to this. Mm -hmm. um, but um, and I say that that word not in a condescending way, but in like a very gay, like sashaying my hand kind of way for those who can't <laughs> see. Um, and that was like the first reason. But God calls us to places for more than just our first instinctual reasons. Um, for me now, it's like, good Lord, it's the discovery of my religious ancestors and cousins in my religious ancestors. Um, there's more than just, you know, the word we claim is Christian. There is so much diversity um, mm -hmm. and interconnectedness and also separateness in the way that we worship and, and commune and um, hopefully respect each other in the way that we talk about God. Um, so for that aspect, seminary is stretching me and, and growing me. Um, and I love it. Good Lord, I love learning. I love books. There's a whiteboard behind me. I told Mason that I was going to try to set up my closet to some degree. And still, you can just see all the clothes and shoes around me. But I have my whiteboard, some books that make me feel grounded or near me. Like mm -hmm. I, I, I carry like my faith and my, my like altars and rituals through um, wisdom. Um, mm -hmm. So I'd say that there's many altars throughout my home of books that I am reading or like want to read soon. You know, they just kind of travel with me throughout different parts of my room. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think, yeah, I believe in those things. And I believe that we as we as um, humans get to call out and call in um, and hold accountable uh, the way that that wisdom is dispersed. And that matters to me, too. So clearly a lot of the work that you do in your life and in seminary is queer theology. What does queer theology mean to you? <laughs> um, I actually want to give a shout out uh, to a colleague of mine who goes to Yale, who's graduating from Yale right now. Um, or their name is Skylar. And Skylar and I were having a text conversation. I'm just inviting you into my text conversations, Great. people of the world who are listening, Great. like you were there. This is who I am. I'm very for. Um, and we were texting about collectively putting together resources for queer theology. And we ran into this conundrum where I said, you know, I can only think of one person right now, one, one person right now. Um, that I would say, oh yeah, this person has like really defined and shaped queer theology for me. And I know that there's more than one person, but the reality is, especially in the academy and seminary, like there are very few entry points to queer theology, mm -hmm. depending on where you go, okay? Like you might go to Union and you have a lot more access. I do not go to Union. I do not have that much access. <laughs> um, and even in the outside world, people doing queer theology are adjacent to queer people. 
um, because they still have the mainstream voice, like like white cis gay men might mm-hmm. have the mainstream voice or white straight men might have the mainstream voice and say, I talked to some queer people, I wrote a book or mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. read these books. And so now I'm the authority on so-and-so experience. Um, so for me, queer theology isn't a book. <laughs> um, queer theology is our bodies and our minds and our spirits showing up in spaces despite being told no. Hold on. I just got a phone call. My apologies. Oh, no, um, problem. no problem. Despite being told no, uh, despite um, being told that we can't show up as our full selves, like resilience in our queerness, resilience in the ways that we find new ways to practice faith and spirituality. That's queer theology for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and writing, as I was telling Skylar, I was like, you know what, we right now, like the queer generations, like now and before, like we're writing the queer theology. We're also living and breathing it into the universe by being present. Um, so that would be like my honest answer mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. It is our, it is our, being showing up in the world and showing God's reflection of, of the uniqueness of and vastness of how God creates people. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. A lot of queer folks uh, have been harmed by people interpreting the Bible in certain ways. Um, and so much so that a lot of queer folks actually feel like they can't see themselves in a lot of these biblical stories. Uh, you do a project that I absolutely love called Bible Query. Can you talk a little bit about <laughs> how you engage with the Bible so that queer folks like yourself can see themselves in it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And shout out to Aaron Green, who's the co-founder of Bible Query. I'm saying shout out like I'm on a live radio show. <laughs> shout out. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say... Aaron and I's approach to um, cognitive, I'm going to say that a lot, especially when I'm thinking about the writing I do about um, the biblical case, which when I say biblical case, I'm talking about the affirming biblical case for inclusion. Um, It's a cognitive um, process. It's not really um, emotional or body oriented. It's Mm. or spiritual oriented. It's cognitive, um, which, you know, I could say more about that. So a lot of the ways that the biblical case is taught, um, it's taught. Keyword, it's taught. Mm. It's not embodied. It's not felt. It's not worked through. It's not massaged. It's not like felt out about where that's caused harm. It's just like, here it is. You take a three-week course in it. Now you know it. Go forth and tell the world about all you know and change everyone's mind. And no offense to anyone who does that and behaves in that way and teaches that way, we are grateful for that work, but it's very harmful and toxic to queer people. Um, I being someone who did that went and learned Mm -hmm. the biblical case and then went out and thought I was going to change the whole world wrong. It's not the way that works. (laughs) Um, So the way that we teach the biblical case is we do, uh, we have a cohort that, that will start back up in March. Um, so if you want to learn more about that, you can go to biblequery.com. Um, but we do a cohort where we do go through the biblical case. Um, but we invite you to do it with us. And we also start, I'm giving away freebies. We also start with the core question of who told you so that you're constantly having to touch back with yourself, whether that's touching, you know, 
your shoulder, your collarbone, your chest, whatever, your kneecap, whatever reminds you that you're like sitting, living, breathing human being when something happens and like pinpointing that. If we're reading through a particular clobber passage or scripture, okay, who told me about that? How did that make me feel? What is it about this? Do, can I trust that person? What is going on? And we create this communal atmosphere. And thankfully, um, this last cohort, a brave space where we talk about it out loud. If someone does have a trigger point and they're doing that, we're watching each other. This is on Zoom, mind you. We're being safe people because um, it's all over the world. We had people from all over the world in our first cohort. And we stop and we check in. And then we talk about it. We share the narrative around how that might have harmed us. What happened? Where is it? Where is it sitting? So it's a really, um, it's a more embodied approach to to caring and tending to um, kind of like the, the cactus, little spikes from a cactus. And you just can't figure out where it is in your foot, but you're trying mm. to find it to get it out so you can move forward. That's what we do together. Um, within the cohort with the biblical case. Um, and Aaron, you know, Aaron Green is a wonderful, like, exegetical, you know, mm -hmm, God. Mm -hmm. Retweet that. Goddess. I'll retweet yeah. that. Yeah. So, um, you know, they're really, really wonderful at this. And I bring in an aspect of uh, more, um, Aaron has pastoral care too. My focus is predominantly around grief care and around um, emotional and spiritual embodiment. Um, and so we kind of hold that together with, with our cohort and we do the work together. We're not mm -hmm. just saying, trust us verbatim. We're saying, here's what we know. Here's what we've experienced. Now tell us what you think. Tell us what you know now. Tell us what was told to you before. Um, so it is a very um, narrative approach to working your way through it without a promise that you're going to be completely healed once you get through because mm -hmm. there's more work to be done once you know a thing, I mean, once you take a piece out of a Jenga and it's completely fallen on the ground, you kind of have to put the tower back together. And it's a whole lot easier to put the tower back together when you have a community to do it with. A little different than what we've been chatting a little bit about, but one of the things that I found really amazing on your website was that you've written a little bit about the death doula movement. And I I've known a little bit about this movement. I find it absolutely fascinating. I love the fact that you're kind of interested in it as well. So for those who are unfamiliar with the death doula movement, what is it? And what kind of theology do you think it contributes to the world? Ooh, I really like that theology question. <laughs> you ask such great questions. Well, thank I love you. it. Um, I'm going to read a quote, actually, because that's the nerd I am. And <laughs> I, I also want to say that um, there are two uh, schools in the U.S. Um, region who you can get um, degrees or certificates through to be an end-of-life care um, professional. Um, and different movements and different communities refer to themselves in different ways. Um, for the sake of the research that I wrote, um, the model of care that I wrote, I call that model the living death doula. And I 
refer to people as death doulas, but there are some community branches, depending on who you're talking to, that might refer to themselves of as um, end of care or mm. death midwifery. Um, it just depends on who you're talking to within that end of life community. Mm -hmm. So I want to like, you know, be um, honoring of that community by naming those variations of names. Mm. Um, but one of the schools that exists in the U.S. is led by Francesca Arnaldi, who would refer to himself as a death doula. Mm -hmm. um, and this is uh, a quote in my research that I think will help us. Um, through all the ways that we doula, we promote empowerment and healing born of processing and bravely facing that which threatens one's sense of intactness. And so for death doula work, um, what a death doula is doing is walking alongside this person, this individual, this entity, this being who is making their way to the end of life. And when we're talking about the word doula, um, that is, you're literally ushering a new thing in, whether that new thing is life, because we have um, doulas that work with um, mothers. Instead mm -hmm. of going to a hospital, you might go to a midwifery that helps you have a natural birth and doulas you that way. Um, and instead of ushering in life, you are ushering in death, which is just as sacred mm -hmm. as the life that comes in. And so these death doulas are working with those that are dying um, to negate distraction to negate anything that would um, disembody them from the full experience of, of dying well. Um, meaning, for example, um, I spoke with a queer hospice nurse who's just as much a death doula as someone who proclaims them to be literally a death doula. And they were talking about how um, it's as simple as reminding that person that bodies have been doing this activity of dying forever mm. and they know what to do. And allowing your body to naturally and organically commit to that process and, and reminding that person that they're doing wonderful, beautiful work in the way that they're allowing themselves to feel everything that they're feeling. Um, and hopefully that person has been able to name the things that they want um, for the dying process, which is why end of life care is so important. Um, and they also, the death doula works with the family and, and brings more of a communal aspect to what dying can look like in, in a home um, instead of, you know, like sourcing it out all to another group or entity. The family is more involved with how to care, make that person comfortable in their transition, playing music, caring for them, putting blankets on them, reading to them, things that would be discussed in um, a... Uh, directive, a, a death directive. Anyway, sorry, language. So um, a doula is there to be a facilitator and a mediator of just grace and love to keep that person fully mm -hmm. intact to their last breath so that they can be born again into transition of whatever that person believes or life that is um, for them after this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. God, I just, I think that's just incredible work. Uh, the, the, the quote or the thing that you said that really stands out to me uh, about how um, human bodies have been dying since the beginning of a human body. Like, mm -hmm. and so to think that it's this really universal experience that we have, yet in a lot of cultures, especially in a lot of like white Western cultures, we just have no way, we have no framework 
to comprehend and think and process through this really universal experience. And I think in part in doing that, uh, in the inability to comprehend and frame it, uh, it really has a lot of disastrous um, effects on on white people and ends up, you know, uh, manifesting in ways that oppress other people. Uh, so anyway, I, I, I think this movement is extremely helpful, especially for white people to think through yeah. death and violence and um, all, all the ways that white people really try to, di white, whiteness disembodies us, uh, us white people. And I would, I'd like to add, like, the movement is new and mainstream conversation, but death duels have been here. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. it, like. Um, Death duels have been here, not just in in, in white westernized culture. Because when we're saying Western culture, we're saying white people. Right. Um, <laughs> like if you know, let's boil it down. Mm -hmm. I know that's very all encompassing and dangerous. But when white people take up the um, positions of uh, you know spiritual guides of indigenous communities or um, mm -hmm. other you know ethnic relational communities in other countries like or ousting um indigenous spirit leaders when we first came to this country and getting rid of uh, all like what we would dub in westernized society as alternative medicine but the mm -hmm. death tools have been here and been doing this work way before we came in and said oh we bury a person this way and we do it this way and it has to feel this way i mean before this is a tangent but it's i will talk to you about death all day long because i think it's important mm -hmm. but before the Civil War, we were doing death care communally. We were having communal care in our homes. And we weren't, you know, preserving bodies in a certain way and having funerals in a certain way and doing all this jazz. That only happened because of the mass death that was happening during the Civil War. And they needed to figure out a way to preserve bodies. Um, so it's an interesting, um, the death duel movement right now is kind of bringing us back into um, an open dialogue about what it means to die, what it means to die well, and what care around death looks like and the grief that's still left in the room. Mm -hmm. And for Westernized society, um, I'll go back to that word to like Bradley put it out for more than just white people. For Westernized society, that isn't something we do well. In mm -hmm. medicinal mm -hmm. purposes, we, we separate everything. Uh, we try to prolong life as much as possible which i can you know like i can empathize with that wanting and that yearning we don't talk about um our emotional felt sense uh, we don't do that well and also like religion plays a really big role in that disembodiment too um so it is i mean it's very fascinating um all of it is I'm going to switch gears a little bit, but you host a wonderful podcast called How to Be Human. What do you hope to share to the world in the conversations that you have on that podcast? Um, I love the title of my podcast because it sounds like I'm going to give you a how-to, and I'm not. <laughs> um, I'm specifically not telling you how to be human, but I'm inviting you, hopefully, into here, um, real human messiness. Mm. Um, and have a mirrored reflection of either your experience or hearing a new experience to kind of broaden the senses on 
on what it means to be human and what it means to be in relationship with whatever our our spiritual um, belongings are, because there is this intersection of of belief and being in that podcast. So, yeah. What uh, have you learned from those conversations? Any any oh, insights? Goodness. I'm sure there must must be at least one. Oh my goodness. Um, I would say on a personal level. Um, when the first season I interviewed, um, uh, Cecilia Houston Torrance and Leah Allen, who are not household names, um, they're both, um, a black woman, a black trans person who does and was doing, um, voting protection work right around 2018, right after Stacey Abrams was, you know, um, voter suppression abounds in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And so we did an episode on that together and had a conversation about, okay, what do we do now um, to change what's happening in Georgia and ultimately change um, how we talk about voter suppression? And I think I learned um, in that conversation the immense importance of just shutting the fuck up as a white mm. person. Um, I didn't actually ask anything. Um, I let them talk to each other and there were only maybe three or four times where you heard my voice. Um, and I just learned so, so much about, um, the black experience in voter suppression in Georgia, at least, and what was needed. And so from that conversation, um, I was like, oh shit, like, I know I always have work to do, but oh my God, I have like a lot, a lot, a lot of fucking work to do. Like mm-hmm. I need to get involved. What ways can I get involved? How can I, how can I help? Um, and so that was kind of personally for me, like a marker of reminding myself that, you know, sitting down and shutting up is a part of activism and is a part of like doing change. Mm-hmm. Um, and like all of these episodes, you can learn something. But for me, that one always sticks out a lot. Yeah. You're gonna have to start a new podcast called Shut the Fuck Up. <laughs> Yeah, where I just don't talk and I let two people yep. talk to each other the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> the best podcast host of all time right there. Yeah. <laughs> How have you experienced God lately? Mm. I love, I wish that people could see your face. You like ask the question and then you did like this little thing in your mouth like, mm, I'm going to see how you answer this one. <laughs> um, in my trap I, door in this one. Oh, my trap. Um, how have I experienced God recently? Oh, that's easy through children. Um, I work as a um, a di- digital health, a spiritual formation and education digital coordinator. You know, Is that the official title? Yeah, that's it. I just wanted to get it out. I wanted to see if I could do it um, for uh, Faith UCC, which is a. Um, that's a classic UCC like title for mm-hmm. for that kind of person. I'm learning. I'm learning about the UCC. <laughs> they really uh, love those really long titles. I, I just that's who I'm, uh, I'm seeking uh, ordination through them, which is exciting for that's me great. to like finally know and be super excited and feel like that's home for me. Uh, but I work with uh, Reverend Jess Cass at Faith UCC, um, which is a church and state college PA um, through the wonderful world of Zoom. And I meet with their kids every Sunday. Um, and I can share this because I know it's going to be in the divisional. I always have to think about how I'm going to share things about children out of respect to children. Uh, but, you know, we had the horrific um, 
not shocking for people who are paying attention, um, siege on the Capitol last week. Today is, just so people know, today is January 13th. So it was last week. Um, and I knew that our children were paying attention. Uh, my wife is a Montessori teacher. She does everything virtually. So I overheard her earlier in the week talking to her kids about it. Mm. Um, and I knew that, that the bold work to do was to talk to our kids about this. Um, and later in the week in State College, some white supremacist went around the town in the dead of the night, as you do, in the dead of the night where no one can see you, um, and spray painted and painted and stuck supremacist slurs all over the downtown borough which mm. is what apparently you call downtown in a northern space is a borough i don't know but that's what they said it's a borough i don't know um i'm learning new things as a southerner so then there was like even more to talk about because these this is their neighborhood these kids neighborhood um and we met last sunday and we and a child brought it up on her own and talked about how she was really scared of course, like, which was just, I don't know, it's like earth shattering to hear a child say how scared they were about that, mm -hmm. um, about that very bad thing. Um, and so we talked about what happened and other children kind of filled in. Um, and then we uh, decided to make signs. And so all the kids made a sign that says love lives here. Mm -hmm. And I told the kids that they could put the signs anywhere they want it so that they could see it, remember it. I wrote a liturgy for them. We prayed over the signs before we put it up. And they're super creative and they're all drawing. And one kid is like far advanced in the sign. The sign is made. And I just kind of look up as I'm making my own. And I see this like seven-year-old um, who has tape and is got a chair and pushed it up to the, the kitchen window and is taping the sign up. Um, and that is how I have seen God like mm -hmm. and then another another parent sent me like a video of their kids walking around with this sign and mm -hmm. like it's the thread of hope um that not everything is lost and that that there is still so much love um amongst us This might be a really redundant question then, uh, given the story you just show, uh, just told, but how do you see your work being inspiring and liberating theological work? Um, oh man, I, hmm. I think that my work is collective, whether or not I'm the one leading it. Um, when a thing happens or manifest, um, I'm very quick to say, you did that, um, we did that. Um, so I wanna say that as like the way that I carry myself pastorally. I never acclaim that like I'm doing the thing or I mm -hmm. did this thing or my flag is here. I did this theologically liberating thing alone because that's not how I believe this works. Um, I would hope that the offerings that I put into the world, which are many, 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 <laughs> um, you know, I, I podcast, there's Bible query. Um, I'm working really hard to 
uh, find ways to create um, end-of-life care conversations for the queer community. And I am a minister of sorts for youth right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm in school. Wow, wow, wow. Um, but I hope that um, that I am cultivating more space than there was before um, to question um, where a thing came from, what of it, of it is ours, to let die what needs to die, to rebirth a new thing that needs to be born, mm. um, and to find new ways to be with God. Um, I cannot stand um, bro theologians, theologians, queer people, white people, all any person who tells a person how they have to leave a space, be in a space, think in a space, pray in a space. Um, I can't stand that. So for me, the liberate liberation of like how I do theology or how I do being human and communing with God is showing up, being my genuine self, and then making room for other people's genuine self mm. um, to come through, which is very Howard Thurman. Very Howard Thurman is definitely um, an informant of of that. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, there's no better way to end a conversation than with Howard Thurman. So last question, Rachel, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Oh, yeah. You can go to everything on social media that is queer and faith. Um, you can also go to Bible Query on Instagram now. This is a hot take secret. No one knows yet because we haven't put anything out, but we do have an Instagram uh, for Bible Query. Um, for me personally, my writing, my research, my podcast, um, anything that I think that you're like super interested in, you can go to queerandfaith.com. If you're interested in one-on-one um, -on -one pastoral care calls, group pastoral care calls, and the cohort that may be coming up, then you should go to biblequery.com. And the only other thing I would think of, because equity matters and being paid for your work matters, if you want to toss coins at me, my Venmo is Queer and Faith too. I certainly have some books to pay for for spring, so <laughs> blessings abound on that end. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. It's just been absolutely wonderful to chat with you. I think the world of your work and you're just an absolutely wonderful human being that is uh, bringing so much joy and so much blessing to the world. And so uh, thank you for uh, sharing a little bit more zest of your life with all of us. Thank you so much, Mason. I am so glad we got to hang out. I hope we get to do it more. Me too. If you would like to connect with Rachel Anuaro and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.